Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. Today and over the next few days, you'll hear from us in shorter episodes where we tackle one topic at a time. Now, I've been listening to more of these daily podcasts, shows like Vox's Today Explained or New York Times The Daily, and I've kind of liked this format where you get to spend 20 minutes or so with the hosts, and then you get to get on and tackle the rest of your day. So we thought we would try that out with y'all. So let us know what you think of this new format. We might call it Peach Bites, or that might be a terrible name, and you might have a better one for us. If you have a name idea for us, tweet at us at at PeachPodGA on Twitter, or email us peachpod.podcast at gmail.com. On today's episode, we talk about new legislation from Jenny Earhart that would criminalize care for transgender children. Megan, we're going to have new legislation in the General Assembly next legislative session. And all that I understand about it is that it's it may potentially make it tougher for transgender children to access the health care that they need. And I just saw basically one headline about that this week. But could you tell us a little bit about what that legislation is going to be and, and who is bringing that to the legislature? Sure. And you're right about your understanding of it. Jenny Earhart, um, state representative for District 36, um, she wants to create a bill to make it a felony for medical professionals to help minors with uh, gender confirmation surgery, also known as gender transition. What she has proposed is that she thinks that this bill will help prevent children from having irreversible medical procedures that they aren't necessarily ready for or fully informed on. And it would criminalize Um, actions by medical professionals who happen to perform gender confirmation surgeries or prescribe medicines to help with gender confirmation and things like that. She is, Earhart is also talking about including language that could punish parents who allow their child, uh, their transgender child to go through gender confirmation procedures and surgeries and intake medications and things like that. So this gets really touchy. There are a lot of different angles. There's a lot of science on both sides of this. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out here that this is very much an ongoing discussion. I clearly fall on the side of the transgender child. If a, if a transgender child needs these life-saving procedures, then they should have them. And I say life-saving because many of these children are at risk for committing suicide. Suicide rates among transgender identified people are incredibly high. And being able to go through life, especially starting as a young age, with gender confirmation is truly life-saving. So let's ask, what is proper care for transgender children? Well, that's allowing them to have space and support to make these altering decisions. That's working with doctors, that's working with parents, that's working with specialists, that's working with mental health professionals, if necessary, to make sure that the child is making an informed decision, as well as a decision that is medically safe for them. So one of the big arguments against this is that gender reassignment surgeries shouldn't be performed on a non-consenting person, that is a person who is not of majority age of 18. But these reassignment surgeries are rarely performed before then. And what usually tends to happen with younger patients is that they are giving puberty blockers to allow for cosmetic changes, redistribution of body fat and body hair. And these can be stopped at any time. They can be restarted at any time. And the same technologies and medical advances that allow 
these uh, puberty blockers to exist can also kind of kickstart puberty again, should they need to, because we've got hormone therapies and things like that. There have been cases of really young patients having gender confirmation surgery. Uh, in fact, one of the cases that I found, um, and Kyle, I believe you saw this one too, was um, a child who's 17 years old. But they're also from some of the, one of the more fear-mongering sites talks about how as children as young as 13 or 14 are having perfectly good breasts removed in full mastectomies and things like that. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, that this is private medical information. So there's not a lot of data and, you know, it basically requires the patient to come forward and say, Hey, I had this surgery or it requires a case to come forward to talk about it um, for us to get really good numbers on the age of these children. But what I know from being involved with the trans community is that doctors don't perform this surgery on a whim and they don't provide uh, hormone-related therapies on a whim. They are doing this in an informed way with the patient and giving, making sure the patient has not only the mental health support that they need, but that they have the either familial support or friend support or some sort of support network to help them go through this transition because it's really dangerous if they don't. And that has been, that is something that medical professionals have indeed acknowledged. So I think that's all very helpful information. I learned a lot. This is something that I uh, certainly don't have a lot of knowledge on. Um, But I think this legislation raises for me, it has echoes of the discussion that was had over the abortion ban legislation um, it is criminalizing the care provided by healthcare providers. It deals with what is, for some people, a deeply conflicting moral issue. But what stands out to me is, in in both of these situations, legislation like this appears to me to send a message to a specific community about how that community is valued by the people who make our laws. What kind of message do you think that this legislation sends to children in the trans community, to people who care about those children and people who care about people who are transgender? What what message do you think this is sending? Oh, as you might expect, the message is terrible. The message basically says, oh, well, I think that you're less than because I don't agree with your diagnosis or I don't agree with your feeling about yourself. You know, that would, that'd be akin of somebody coming up to you and saying, well, I don't believe that you're left-handed because I say that you're right-handed. I believe that all people should be right-handed. I believe people were born to be right-handed. And so that's, I'm going to enforce that. And that, and handedness was actually enforced for a while. Um, Now, granted, handedness is something that while it does have you know, mental and physically damaging effects to be forced to use a certain hand when you, when you are born favoring the other, this is an even bigger issue. This is so much more fundamental than handedness to me. This is definitely something that basically says that something that is so inherent to who you are as a person, we're not even going to acknowledge, or we're going to say you're wrong. You don't get to make any decisions about it we're going to make that decision for you and completely remove any autonomy that you have. So what do you think about the politics of this? This is one of those issues that strikes me that regardless of what people's personal feelings are, that legislation like this that seeks to send a message, it may be a turnoff to people 
of a more moderate disposition, people who may believe in, despite whatever personal beliefs are, people who believe in letting people live, letting people lead the lives that they want to lead, the lives that they feel like they should be leading. Is it getting beyond just the Republican base, the people who will be galvanized for Republicans by this legislation? Is this a smart strategy for broadening that base and for for stopping Republican losses among more moderate voters? Oh, that's a great question. And I don't have any good data on how moderate voters feel about the transgender community. I can make some assumptions. So, you know, this is clearly just based on my, what I have heard. Um, I think that it could actually, and that's dangerous. And I think that that's part of why the Republicans are pushing so hard on these issues. I think that people who are unfamiliar with transgender people, even within the LGBTQ community, don't really know what to do with people who are transgender. I will speak for myself in saying that being transgender is not my experience. But my answer to that is to do research and come to understanding. That's not everyone's approach. A lot of people's approaches is to have a sense of otherness about the transgender community. And so I think that because of that, there just tends to be an, a bias against the community. And that might actually swing some votes. I hate to say it. And I really hope the day there is data out there that tells me I'm wrong. But I, based on my experience, I can't think otherwise. I, I feel a little bit more optimistic about it. I remember the transgender bathroom bill being a big issue in North Carolina as North Carolina as Democrats in North Carolina were able to start winning statewide races. And I don't know that it was primarily driven by people having, by people generally having goodwill towards the transgender community. But I think it is also somewhat driven by moderate voters belief that these are issues that are not super important to me. These are issues that make us look bad as a state when we have bad headlines, when we're being mocked for being backwards and discriminatory by other regions of the country. Um, North Carolina lost sporting events over the discriminatory legislation that they passed before, if I'm remembering correctly, before I believe it was rolled back or not put fully into effect. I just wonder if continuing to beat this drum for Republicans, it is certainly going to galvanize the base of voters that will never vote for Democrats anyways. But President Trump seems to push on a lot of these issues all at the same time. His immigration agenda sort of speaks to this same uh, discriminatory instinct among some of his base voters. Anti-LGBTQ policies generally sort of push on this same push in the same direction also. And I wonder if there are some voters who look at what's going on and look at the chaos and say, this is really not what we should be focused on. And regardless of what I believe personally, like we should be talking about jobs and healthcare and education and, and Democrats centering their messaging on that and saying, and saying, these are the things that I'm running on. These are the things that I'm going to prioritize. If you elect me, that has appeared to have been successful in the last couple of cycles. Um, it gives me a little more hope, but um, you can certainly look at individual instances of, of maltreatment of people, of the fact that this bill would even be introduced at all and, and conclude differently. 
Right. And I think your points are incredibly valid. And honestly, I hope you're right. You are more optimistic than I am. And I would say that that is actually something that in answering, I didn't fully consider. You're right. A lot of the transgender bathroom bills, uh, transgender related bathroom bills, um, caused some galvanization within uh, states and to help protect everyone, including transgender individuals, as well as I will, I also forgot to note that the military transgender band actually galvanized a ton of people because just the fact that it's the military and that Trump was going after the military. And so uh, that shows some ability to swing votes, votes to a more progressive side of things. So I think you're right. I hope that you are right in the sense that this is less of a concern. My, my concern is, is, less of an issue than I, than I previously stated, but I will say that I have seen some horrible biases against the transgender community. And so my fear is definitely related to some votes swinging in the wrong direction from my perspective. Well, I also believe if I'm now, I'm just speaking from memory, so I could be incorrect here, but I think we've seen a movement towards more inclusive policies and health insurance for uh, people who are on the state health insurance plan, including people who work for the state university system. Um, If I'm remembering correctly, there was somebody who I believe was a police officer who was transgender who sued their local community because the insurance that they got through their local community as a public employee um, did not cover transgender care. Um, And I believe they were successful. We'll put some links in show notes um, to, to, uh, solidify my memory on those things. But I think in other domains, you are seeing more openness, more, more bodies that are not driven by politics that are that are more sensitive to these issues. Um, so hopefully you would see that trend continue. And, and hopefully this legislation, at least in my view, hopefully it never sees a light of day. So one thing I kind of understand in conversations with you as we were preparing for this topic is that the issue of consent is important here for a variety of parties involved. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So there are several pieces to this consent piece. Um, the two major ones that are just super out front is the fact that there is the idea of stripping parental consent to allow transgender youth to make decisions about gender confirmation for themselves. This is actually what's proposed by the Federal Equality Act. And this is actually why a lot of Republicans have a problem with it, because they do not agree with the idea of stripping parental consent. The other side of this is enforcing parental consent. I already kind of touched on it. With Earhart's bill, parents who do consent to having their child have these Uh, gender confirmation procedures and surgeries and medications could actually be treated as criminals. So, you know, it it almost becomes, it becomes almost worse for the parent if they're consenting to this, but at the same time, if they're supporting their child, then, uh, and they're going to these appointments with them and they're giving them the mental health care that they need, then they're probably going to consent to this and they'll be on, on board with it. Um, This is just how healthcare works in general. You know, parents go to the doctor's office and the doctor says, Hey, your kid has an ear infection. We want to prescribe amoxicillin. And the parent says, okay, cool. And they go and fill a prescription for amoxicillin. Some parents who don't believe in that sort of thing won't consent to that, that care and they will leave and not fill the prescription or try something else. Another kind of flavor of consent is related to the intersex community. 
Um, and this is where things get really in the weeds with this with this bill. This is a partial quote from a an article from today from the Valdosta Times, um, in which it, it kind of talks about this uh, transgender care. Intersex children are often forced to have gender reassignment surgeries very early on before they can even speak, many of them before they can even walk. And so the issue here is that by criminalizing these types of procedures, you do protect intersex children from being forced into a gender with which they do not identify just because somebody arbitrarily made a medical decision for them as an infant or as a really young child. This is where I basically say that medical decisions need to be made on a case-by-case basis in conjunction with the patient, with medical professionals, um, when appropriate, with family and parents. And so this is kind of where I think that this bill is just completely out of line in general. I understand that it could provide protection to intersex children, but what I also understand is that medical decisions are private and they need to be made with the utmost care. And by making a blanket statement and by enforcing a bill or a law that makes medical decisions for people, much like the abortion bans, that's just inappropriate. That's not what I want government to do. I want government to enable me to make the best decision possible and to work with the appropriate medical care professionals and support personnel. I don't want the government to say, hey, we're going to decide that you can't do this just because we're not comfortable with it, because ultimately that's what this bill is doing. Well, thank you, Megan, for walking us through all that. I think my general reaction is is that it is really absurd to see parents who are supporting their children put in this kind of situation that this legislation does and that the message that this sends to those parents who love their kids and are supportive of their kids, um, that their activities would be treated on the level of like child abuse. Um, But that at the same time, it is really unfortunate for children whose parents are not supportive of them. Um, That's a really tough spot. Um, But it, it, it certainly strikes me in general that this is not an issue where a government mandate is is going to solve problems in the most effective way. All right, y'all. Well, I think that is a good place to leave it for today's podcast. Again, for our listeners, let us know what you think of this shorter format, if you like it better, or if you miss getting to spend a whole hour to 90 minutes with us. We're going to leave it there, and we will talk to y'all again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.